I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and we'll read the portion together from Mark chapter 4 as we uh, continue our study in the Gospel according to Mark. It's Mark chapter 4, beginning from verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things in parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables, and he told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed um, sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of, for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times what was sown. He said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Let's not forget the background, what's gone before. We've uh, come into chapter 4 here, but in chapter 3, as we considered last time, uh, Jesus has been accused by the religious leaders of doing his powerful works, which is the work of the Spirit of God in his life, to do miracles and to uh, empower him to do a wonderful teaching that's so attractive. Uh, but they said that the miracles he, were, he was doing was in the power of Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. Uh, the Lord of Demons, uh, attributing that work to Satan. Imagine hearing that when you are God and you know the Holy Spirit of God is doing all of that work. No wonder the Lord said to them, 
It's an unforgivable sin. And then, because of the popularity of the Lord and the things that the Lord was doing and how people were flocking to him, the things that he was teaching were different, but yet with authority, but they were different from what the uh, religious leaders of the day were teaching. It seems his extended family at the end of chapter 3 come to take custody of him. And because, uh, as is implied and is said in other texts that recount the same thing, they thought he'd lost his mind. And uh, the Lord then says, those who are around me and who are listening to the things I teach and who do the will of God, they're my mother and brothers. And uh, that was the background to this. Mark then uh, transitions us and he then says that Jesus then continued. He continued in his ministry. Uh, despite the, the pain, uh, you can imagine, that he would have had from that criticism uh, and also from his own family, extended family. But yet he carries on because the Lord's face was set um, to the task that the Father had set to him. He says, I always do the things that the Father has given me to do. And here he is continuing that. That's a lovely scene, isn't it? It says, Jesus uh, began to teach by the lake. So he's still up in Galilee at this time. So he comes to the northern shores, most likely of the Sea of Galilee. And he's there. And the crowds are so great because he is so popular. He's doing all these miracles. And his teaching is uh, of interest to people to some degree. That they come and they're pressing and uh, he gets into a boat and they push the boat a little bit out. And you have this, this natural um, environment that allows his voice to come across. You can't imagine that the Sea of Galilee was tossing and turning and the waves were breaking loudly. But just imagine something that's still, I would think. And the Lord's in the boat and the people are right up against the water's edge. They're stacked up onto the beach and they're listening. It says in very large crowds. There was a big crowd here to listen to the Lord. And he sits down to teach. That's better than standing in a boat. But it was also something that the leaders of the Jews did in those days. The teachers would sit down to teach. They would stand for prayer. But they would sit to teach. It was a posture of the one who had been given the seat of learning. And the seat of authority to teach. And it says to us that he was teaching them many things in parables. And... He went on to then say to him in his teaching that employed parables, this parable that we've got to consider uh, today. Parables were a means of conveying truth. Uh, one definition of a parable, and it comes from the word itself, para, means to lay something alongside. So it's you, you bring something alongside what the truth is, but you describe it in a different way so that people can be helped to understand it. The definition that I think is helpful is it's a story or a saying that illustrates a truth by comparison. Sometimes by hyperbole or the use of a simile. The text says that he was teaching them this way. This was the Lord's chosen method at this period of his ministry when he's most popular it seems because of the miracles and the things that people are, are being healed of that he employs these parables as his means of teaching. This is the first recorded parable we have in Mark's Gospel. Matthew, because he probably was influenced by Mark's Gospel, which was written earlier, also follows the same pattern. You come to Luke, and uh, Luke does record one other parable before this one, but this does seem 
to take a priority place. And there's a reason for that, which we'll see in a moment in what the Lord says himself. And it's just a straightforward and simple story, isn't it? That the people of that agrarian culture and society could instantly relate to. Uh, the farmer or the sower going out and scattering his seed. And then you've got four uh, different grounds into which that seed or onto which that ground uh, on that seed falls. And then you have the, the hard ground, the birds come and take it away. You have the rocky ground with a little soil and it withers whenever the sun uh, beats on the thing that springs up. Or you have the third ground full of weeds where the, uh, the crop gets choked and there's no fruitfulness from it. And then the, the last one is the good soil, that which has been turned over and has been prepared and it's got all of the nutrients in it and the seed gets in there and it takes root and it grows and then produces the crop. Wonderful crop. I was sharing this story with the kids on Tuesday evening at uh, Tuesday Club. I used the example of, of our monkey puzzle tree in the front garden. That came from one little seed. And if you want to see what comes from one little seed, go and have a look at Gordon and Rhoda's little uh, patio area outside uh, their, uh, their apartment because they've taken a seed and they've got a number of little uh, monkey puzzle trees from one seed. But our monkey puzzle tree, uh, quite a, most years, is just full of, uh, of these pods that then explode and all of these seeds come down. There's hundreds of them, if not thousands. And that all came from one seed. It's a remarkable thing that God has engineered in his creation into, uh, into the way things are. That from one thing comes many things. And that's the case with salvation. That from one person and from one act of sacrifice by the Son of God himself and his, his own death when he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains alone, but if it does, then it will bear a crop. The Lord himself knew that his own life given would result in a multitude that we see in the book of Revelation who stand in the presence of God declaring that he is their saviour for eternity. The Lord appeals to the people whenever he shared that simple story. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. So he's like... If, if you've heard something in that, then you listen up or you inquire, I think. Is, it's actually an appeal. It's an invitation uh, for more, which is what we get to when it tells us in verse 10 that when he was alone, and the Bible version that I, I use says his followers along with the 12. The NIV puts it the other way. It says the 12 along with the others or the others. But it seems though at this time there was a bigger group, as we do see in the book of John as well. There was a bigger group of people who would have called themselves disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus. In addition to the twelve. And this is a group that comes and they gather around Jesus. And they're, they're listening to him. They're stepping away from the things of everyday life to spend time with the Lord. Because they want to know more. And it's this group, the twelve included among them that says, can you tell us more about the parables? Notice it's plural. So maybe it is the case that the Lord had already started to speak in parables and the way Matthew and Mark have laid it out for us, that this is the first of the parables. They've done that for a reason in, in the way they want to convey uh, their biography and their story of the life of Jesus. When the writers, just like we do, whenever we write something, we bring an intention to that. And these writers, through the work of the Holy Spirit of God, 
as he oversaw and superintended their work of writing. There was purpose and intention to the things that they recorded in the order they did. But notice, as we leave that one alone, uh, the disciples said, tell us about the parables, plural. Why, why are you using parables? And this is where this text probably becomes a little bit troubling for us if we just come at it with a superficial reading, as we did do in the run-through. And that's why when we come to the Word, we need to stop and we need to think it through and we need to compare it with other texts and we need to listen uh, to teachers who've spent time in the text and so on. It's a reminder to us of the importance of the Word and spending time in it. He says to them, that group, including the twelve, who had separated themselves in some degree from the others to come and to be with the Lord. He says, to you it has been given. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. The NIV says the secret. Mystery is a, probably a better translation because it's the Greek word mysterion, which you get throughout the New Testament, which is used to speak of something that was hidden in Old Testament times, that the people of the Jews did not fully understand because God had not yet fully revealed it. It was a mystery because there was something there. We just don't know what it is. Peter describes the prophets whenever they were speaking the things about the Messiah. He says they were writing things and they didn't fully understand what it was. And they they were trying to search it out. That's the sort of idea here. It's not some sort of secret in the sense that this is just between me and you. This was the revealing of a mystery. A mystery, something that had been hidden before because it wasn't in God's timing up until this point for it to be revealed. But in Christ, everything comes to light. And that links with the little section at the end that we read. Here the Lord has come, the one who himself is the light of the world. He comes to bring light and understanding, which is the way we should understand that light comes to bring understanding to things that were previously not understood. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, everything comes in parables, the Lord said. Maybe he's sitting in a room with the people, and he's pointing, as he might do, those who are outside. The other people who were listening to this, and they're just carrying on with life uh, as before. Those outside, everything comes in parables. They're not part of that group of followers. They were hearing the same parables, but they didn't have the same inquiry in response to the stories that the Lord used to help them to understand truth. And then Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is when Isaiah the prophet has that remarkable vision of the Lord high and exalted on his throne and in the temple of God and he sees that the beings around the throne are crying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then he falls down and says, my lips are unclean. How can I carry on God as your messenger given I'm a sinful person and there is that atonement that is made, a coal taken from the altar to purge his lips. And God says, you go out and you speak the words that I give you. But when you go, you will speak my word. And then this quotation that says that the people will see, 
but they won't perceive. They'll hear, but they won't understand. Or they might be forgiven. Now that sounds really harsh on a, on a superficial reading, as I've said. But we need to understand the use of parables and why the Lord would quote from this in this context. The Lord, we cannot say that the Lord in any way was employing deception to try and conceal truth from people. <coughs> what the Lord says immediately after this from verse 21 onwards, I think, helps us to see that reality. The Lord goes on to say, you don't light a lamp and then stick it under the bed or put a basket over the top of it. You don't do that. And the Lord is saying, I'm not concealing truth. What he's telling us is that as, as unbelievers, all of us naturally, and Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, the adversary, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We can't see it. Naturally in our sin, we cannot see the glory of God for what it is. And we can't see it in the person of Christ unless that blindness is removed and light shines in, which is a work of God that Paul goes on to speak about in 2 Corinthians 4. The Lord is saying the same thing here. He says, I'm, ta I, I'm taking these stories and I'm putting them up to describe what truth really is. And for those who are genuinely interested to know more, they'll come and ask. They'll have an inquiring mind. That's always the case when the word of God is spoken. There are some people who will be very happy just to hear a good story. Just like those farmers that were listening in. Oh, I'm going to have to go away and take more care at uh, making sure I don't throw the seed around the edge of my field. Then I'll have more productivity. That's one response to Jesus' story. Or maybe the, the local government were thinking, uh, maybe we need to uh, put some measures in place to help our farmers in this area uh, be more productive. Maybe that's what they took from the Lord's teaching. And some people come into churches uh, because they like a good story. And they go away again. It doesn't do anything for them. And Jesus employed parables in a sense as a as a sifting mechanism or a filtration system, if we can use that, to really get those who had something in their minds. There's something more to this. Because of the person who is teaching me, there's something about this Jesus. Let's put ourselves back. There's something about this Jesus which is different. And that story he's told me makes perfect sense in everyday life. But what does he mean? And they go and pursue him. So those in the house are those who've come after. And for them is the revealing of more of the mystery of the kingdom of God. Gets above the things of this earth. You know, there is no neutrality in our response to the word of God and the claims of Jesus. Either we desire to know more when the word of God is read or, or spoken or taught to us. There's an inquiry that we want to pursue or else it means nothing to us and I think the prophecy of Isaiah and the Lord's use of it is saying that either the word of God and our response to it continues to soften our hearts so that it might be more productive or increasingly our hearts become even harder 
And that's a concept that we see in Scripture that repeatedly people of God hear the Word of God. No. People hear the Word of God and they become increasingly resistant to it. We know that in everyday life. There are things that where it's, as, as we get older, for example, our muscles, um, because of maybe a reduction in exercise and so on, they get, they get old and they get a bit hard and brittle and injury becomes a bigger problem and so on uh, through non-use. Over time, there is that atrophy, if we can say that. So for the, an unbeliever, they can increasingly become hardened to it. And I would just say in my experience of sharing the gospel with people in various settings, people who have got older in life are the hardest to reach with the gospel. That's why we do our work with the children. Get them when they're young. When their hearts are still developing, cleanse them of the notions of this world and the ideologies of this world. And you come to an older person who is an unbeliever, they're so set in their ways. We know this. So either the word of God will soften our hearts or it will harden us increasingly to the things of God. The Lord says in verse 13, do you not understand this parable? It's almost as if he's saying, look, if you don't get this parable, how on earth are you going to get the others? This is a foundational one in a sense. And it is foundational because he tells us that the seed is the word of God. He goes on to describe it. The seed is the word of God. He makes that clear. Actually, Mark says the seed is the word. Matthew says it's the word of the kingdom. Luke says it's the word of God. So we've got the three to come together to tell us that this is God's message. And the Lord probably has in mind that the sower or the farmer in this context, he's really speaking of himself primarily. But it extends, of course, to other people like myself and you as well who have a responsibility to speak the word of God whether that be in a formalized setting like this or in private conversation. It's not about us. It's about the word. It's about the seed. It should be the parable of the seed or the parable of the grounds, really. If you don't understand this one, the Lord says, then you won't understand anything. This is the foundational one. It's your response to the word of God. And this comes to us as believers and any unbelievers who will be listening to this, it comes to us, what is our response? That's the application point right at the end. But very quickly, let's see what the Lord says. The sower sows the word. But then he goes on to tell us in more detail about the various grounds. And there is debate over how we should interpret this. We can't get into the technicalities of it, but let me give you maybe three ways of looking at it. One is uh, that only the last ground speaks of a genuine believer um, who has life that has been given by the working of God and their response to the gospel. That's one option. Second option is the last two grounds speak of a genuine believer who have life that is eternal and uh, that is a work of God and their response to the gospel and the word of God. Or thirdly, it could be the three grounds where there is a spark of life. Now, I tend in one direction, and you'll probably see that whenever we just say a little bit about it in a moment, but the Lord takes these, this uh, simple story and lays it out as a revealing, remember, 
of the mystery of the kingdom of God. As the Lord said to Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Remember he also said to Nicodemus, he says, if you're the teacher of Israel and don't understand this, how are you going to understand earthly things? I meant to say that earlier when the Lord uses parables. He uses earthly stories to convey divine truths that are difficult for us to grasp. So in an attempt to, not an attempt, in, in a help for us in our blindness, he employs something that we can understand, that then by inquiry we can understand more fully. Ground number one describes, as the Lord says, a hard, disinterested heart. It's like the, the rain bouncing off a tin roof. It just, boom, it's gone. And like water off a duck's back, if you prefer. Has, has no place. But notice he mentions that Satan, the one that the leaders had attributed his work to, Satan is the one who comes and takes away the word. The adversary of God has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And there is so much in the ideologies of the world that mean that so many, when they hear the word of God, say, really, it's no different from anything else. It means nothing. Ground number two. What is missing in the NIV is a connection, is a connection phrase here, which means in a similar way. This is verse 16. In a similar way, he then goes on to speak of the ground that is rocky. Now I mention that because that's an important connector in a similar way. In a similar way to what? In a similar way to the previous one where the word had no effect on the life of the individual. In a similar way, the Lord says, the seed uh, that falls in the rocky ground is like someone who initially in the flourish and excitement of being part of something puts their hand up and says, I'm with Jesus. But then he says, but when affliction and persecution come, uh, they quickly fall away, like the sun had withered the plant when it had originally come up. What's also missing, and this is not knocking the NIV, what's also missing, it says in the Greek, they had no root in themselves, in themselves. The NIV just says they had no root. I fear that there are some who have put their hand up and in certain environments say that they are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm with him. And that is their existence whenever they're in a certain group. But they have no root in themselves. Actually, the root is in everybody else or the environment in which they are. But when they're on their own and they're facing affliction or persecution or what other people might say and they say, uh, they just go with the pluralistic flow of society they deny the Lord is that what the Lord is teaching us with ground number two no root in themselves when the moment comes they no longer have their hand up and say I'm with Jesus and bear in mind that uh, the Lord said and Paul quotes it whoever denies me I will deny before my father so I'll leave you to work that one out about ground two on your own. Ground three uh, is the thorns. Where the seed sprouts into what it should be, but then is choked out by the concerns and worries of life, as Jesus says. We all have the worries of life. 
the deceitfulness of riches comes in. And maybe we can see that in our desire to acquire more. And we think our hopes and our future is all contained in the deceitfulness of riches as it's described. But then it goes on to say, and again, the NIV doesn't quite get there. It says, the desires for anything else, anything else that takes priority above the things of God and the word of God, says, the Lord says it chokes it and it becomes unfruitful. Now, does that speak of a believer who has faith, but yet circumstances have pressed in for a period of time and there is an unfruitfulness for them? Maybe. But what we can only say for certain, I think, in our interpretation of the parable is ground, fo- ground number four clearly speaks of what the Lord speaks about so often in his teaching of the fruitful life of a genuine believer. Someone who follows him will demonstrate the fruit of that in their lives and that fruitfulness will remain. So we can be without doubt that ground number four, those people who hear the word, they accept it, they bear fruit, follow the logic that he gives us. They're the ones who bear fruit and produce a crop in God's great work. So verses 21 to 25, as we race to them again, Jesus is reiterating, I suggest to you in that text, that he's not obscuring truth. Instead, he's helping people to understand that there is more to know about the things of God. And someone who has an inquiring mind will come after it. And if someone who's listening even to this in the word of God says, I don't really have that desire, but yet I think I should, then what do you do? You cry out to God and say, give me the desire to know more about this. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. There is a responsibility on our part to respond to it. And if we don't have the response that Jesus is clearly telling us, or Mark is telling us that Jesus said we should have, then we cry out to God and say, give me that response so that I might be what the Lord is looking for, the fruitful Christian. He says in verse 23, if you have ears, hear. And just to conclude, verse 24, he says, be careful what you listen to. This is probably still to that same group. He says, you be careful what you listen to. So to us who would count ourselves in the group of those to whom the Lord is progressively revealing the fuller mysteries of the kingdom of God, let's be careful what we listen to. Today, our tiny little devices and our bigger devices and our even bigger devices open to us this wealth of material that is there for our benefit, but also can masquerade as being a benefit, but can actually fill our ears with stuff that can choke us and actually destroy what God would have for us. What is fearful at the very ending of this is the Lord says that those who have, i.e. they've been given something by their inquiry and God's grace he gives to them, they receive. But God is generous and he will give yet more and more and more and more. That's the experience of a genuine believer that God always gives more. There's always more to follow. But what he says is for somebody who's resistant to the word, 
even what they have, which is the goodness of the common grace of God, breath to live by, food to eat, all of the blessings of life, there's going to come a time when the light will shine into each person's heart. And the Lord says, even what they have will be taken from them. So even the common grace that we all enjoy today, if we remain unrepentant in our sin, even what we have will be taken from us. And we will exist in an eternity where the grace of God does not touch us. That's a fearful way to finish, isn't it? But that's where the Lord brings us. Let's pray together.